the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. This is In the Arena. Hi, I'm Mike Lacona. Years ago, back in the 1990s, I learned about two debates with Dr. William Lane Craig. In one debate, he was debating the atheist Frank Zindler, and the other one, he was debating the New Testament historian John Dominic Crossan. So I asked my wife, Debbie, to get the two debates for me for Christmas on audio cassette tapes. So she got those, and honestly, I can't tell you how many times I listened to them. I listened to them so many times, and I learned a lot, and wow, at that point, I just became a fan of Dr. William Lane Craig. I just thought his ability to debate and, and his knowledge was just amazing. Little did I know that in a few years, I'd get to meet him, and in the years that followed, he would mentor me in many ways and would become a dear friend of mine. So recently, he published a book. This just came out with um, uh, Erdman's. It's called uh, In Quest of the Historical Adam, A Biblical and Scientific Exploration. And this book's going to get a lot of, um, of attention. I, I guarantee that. So um, I've asked Bill to come aboard and uh, let, let's have a little discussion, a short discussion on this book because he's going to be offering a course online where he really gets in depth with this. So, um, hey, Bill, thanks a lot for uh, coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you for your kind remarks, Mike, and it's a pleasure to join you today. Let me just uh, ask you, I, I read this article that is kind of a summary of your book in which you summarize it in the, uh, the, uh, on, in First Things. And, yes. and here's something that you say in that article, and I'm going to quote you here. Old Testament scholars have long remarked on the resemblance of Genesis 1 through 11 to the religious literature of the ancient Near East. Grand themes such as the creation of the world, the origin of mankind, and the near destruction of humanity in the cataclysmic flood are present in both the ancient myths and Genesis 1 through 11. Now, end quote. Now, you go on to say that um, this portion of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, belongs to the genre of mytho-history. Now, that's going to raise some eyebrows amongst many Christians, um, especially evangelicals. What do you mean by mytho-history? Mm -hmm. Mytho-history is a term that was coined by the eminent Assyriologist Torquild Jakobsen to describe a piece of literature that is historical in intent. It intends to relate events concerning people that actually lived and wrought, but it does so in the figurative and metaphorical language of myth, and therefore is not to be interpreted with a sort of wooden literality. Though belonging to myth uh, mytho-history, you say the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 mm -hmm. is, quote, a description of the original creation of man, end quote. How much of it? You know, what about the matter of Adam being made um, from dirt and Eve being formed from one of Adam's ribs? Are those yeah. elements uh, part of the myth in the mytho-history, or do you think they're historical? I think that is part of the figurative language of myth. I have long been 
suspicious of things such as the creation of Eve from a rib out of Adam's side, as though God performed some sort of literal surgery on the man and built a woman out of it, or that God shaped this figurine out of dirt and then breathed into its nose the breath of life and the statue came alive. It seemed for, to me that this was clearly figurative language, but I didn't really have a reason for thinking that until I became acquainted with this genre called mytho-history. And it was precisely the classification of this sort of literature as mytho-history that I think provides a rationale or a reason for taking these sorts of details to be figurative or metaphorical. So what would you say to the person then, Bill, who says, um, well, that's kind of, um, you're dehistoricizing scripture. And in fact, mm. it seems like you're rejecting the possibility of the miraculous. Couldn't God have created man from dirt and Eve from a rib? I mean, um, why does, if he, you believe he rose from the dead, you believe he created the universe. What's right. so fantastic then about the other stuff that we're talking about here? Well, there are two parts to your question. The, the second part concerned the possibility of miracles. And in exploring the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I take a strong stand for supernaturalism and the possibility of miracles. And precisely for that reason, I am unwilling to dismiss the story in Genesis 11 about the sons of God mating with human women and siring children. It seems to me that this sort of activity on the part of supernatural beings is perfectly possible. But when it comes to many, many of the other features of the narratives, it's not a matter of miracles but it's a matter of elements which even the Genesis author, I think, would have found fantastic. For example, fruit that when eaten would magically confer immortality or the knowledge of good and evil against God's will. It's not as though God would do a miracle to bring this about on the occasion of eating the fruit because he didn't want Adam and Eve to gain immortality once they had fallen, and he didn't want them to gain the knowledge of good and evil. He had prohibited it. So these kinds of things can't be regarded as miracles, and yet they do seem to be more in the category of, uh, uh, of uh, magic, and therefore I think more persuasively taken to be figurative. Now, what you need to understand as well, Mike, is that this is not an isolated example. I go through the whole first 11 chapters of Genesis, and you find these sorts of elements coming out again and again and again. And I look at about nine family resemblances of myth, and almost all of these characterize in multiple ways Genesis 1 to 11. So just as Richard Burridge was able to classify the Gospels as akin to ancient biography on the basis of certain family resemblances between the Gospels and ancient biography. So I think a very plausible case can be made 
on the basis of these family resemblances that Genesis 1 to 11 have mythic elements um, in it. And this will not be applicable to other portions of Scripture. You, you might as well argue that because the Psalms are classed as poetry, that would give you license to classify all of Scripture as poetry, or mm -hmm. because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, that that would give you license to classify all of Scripture as uh, apocalyptic literature. The, the charge of dehistorization is only legitimate and serious when you're dealing with a historical genre. If you are dealing with a historical genre, then to be uh, skeptical of the historical um, literality of the account would be problematic. So it sounds to me like you are saying that this is a hermeneutical question. Um, and I like what you're saying about Psalms. Like, yeah, when the Psalms said, when a psalmist says that God's sleeping, it really doesn't mean that God is sleeping. We don't take that in a literal sense. Or let's say the parables of Jesus. You know, when you talk yes. about the Good Samaritan, if someone said, well, the Good Samaritan didn't actually exist, it's a parable. It's, it's the message which is important here. It's hermeneutics. You're not dehistoricizing the text. And it sounds to me like what you're saying here is in mytho-history, a lot of times, a lot of people over the ages, myself included, uh, if what you're saying is true, that we have misinterpreted Genesis 1 through 11 yeah. when we think that this is supposed to be um, like a, a, a camera description of what we would have seen had we been there. It's, yes, that's exactly right. I think it is a fundamental hermeneutical question that I'm posing in the first half of the book. Okay. So you say that Genesis has an interest in history, and you cite yes. the genealogies as a clue. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. These primeval narratives, Mike, are not simply an unordered pool of myths about the prehistoric age. Rather, they are constructed on the backbone, as it were, of a sequence of genealogies that order the principal characters in causal and chronological succession, finishing with Abraham. And beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, you enter a historical era in which the interest is indisputably with historical people. And there is no bifurcation or caesura between uh, the genealogies in 1 to 11 and the genealogies that follow. And I think that that shows that there is a historical interest here. And that's precisely why Jakobsen classified this, not as myth, but as mytho-history. Mm. Okay. Now, you write the following in that First Things article. You say this, and I'll quote you. Since the Pentateuchal author has an interest in history, he intends for his narrative to be at some level historical, to concern people who actually lived and events that really occurred. But those persons and events have been clothed in the metaphorical and figurative language of myth, end quote. Now, when I read this, my thoughts went to the Homeric epics in which you have main characters such as, like in the Iliad, you have uh, Hector and Achilles and Zeus. 
and Apollo and others. And then in the um, Odyssey, you have Odysseus and the Cyclops, uh, Polyphemus and, and others. So, you know, I'm thinking about this, that, that, that some classicists, some scholars of antiquity think that the Homeric epics do preserve a kern some kernels of histor uh, historical truths. Yeah that there was a, um, they think that there very well could have been a historical Hector and Achilles um, and an Odysseus. Um, but obviously the stories of these have been greatly amplified and um, a lot of myth has been put in, in there. So are, are you thinking of the Genesis account in similar terms? Yes, that's exactly right. In my book, I focused primarily on Egyptian and Mesopotamian myths, because these are the most relevant to Genesis 1 to 11. The Homeric myths, the Greek myths come too late to have been an influence on the uh, traditions that are embodied in Genesis 1 to 11. Nevertheless, uh, I did do a little bit of reading in the Greek myths and discovered what you just said, that uh, certain classicists like uh, G.S. Kirk also classify these Homeric myths as, in some cases, mytho-history, as embodying actual historical events like the Trojan War, but then embellished with uh, mythological motifs. So if you were to, I don't know that you're able to do this, but um, what if you were to to look at a percentage. What percentage do you think of Genesis 1 through 11 is history and what percentage is myth? I don't think that it's going to be within our ability to separate the two in that sort of clean way, Mike. I, I think that we have to simply recognize that these are mytho-historical accounts and then look for the central theological truth that these accounts are intending to teach. Uh, just to give one illustration, chapter one, I don't think, is intending to teach us that God made the world in six consecutive 24-hour days. But what it is intending to teach us is that God is the transcendent creator of the universe, distinct from all of the things that have been made, and the sun, and the stars, and the animals, and so forth. They're not gods, uh, not supernatural things to be worshipped. They're just natural things that God has made. And I think that's a central theological truth that is taught by that opening chapter. Mm, interesting. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the fall of man. Now, um, the late uh, evangelical and Anglican theologian J.I. Packer, I remember years ago, I, I listened to, um, my, my wife Debbie found a recording uh, a lecture of his that talks about evolution, creation, and things like this. It's pretty interesting. I had a chance to, to talk to Packer about that uh, a few years ago, right before, I think, right before his 90th birthday. He doesn't remember yeah. that lecture, um, although yeah. he gr agreed with, with it. But in that, to my recollection, he said something to the extent of that Genesis 1 through 11 is a quasi-liturgical celebration of the fact of creation and not a bird's eye view of what we would have seen had we been hovering over the chaos of creation. 
And he went on to say, you know, what about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What about the, the uh, tree of life? Did these really exist? He says, well, I don't know. Trees were symbols in ancient literature. And what about the serpent, the snake in the garden? He says, I don't know. I, I really don't know if there, there really was a serpent. I, I don't really care. And that really shocked me, you know, because, um, you know, look, I, I focus on the New Testament, historical stuff about Jesus. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I don't spend a lot of time in theological matters or especially stuff with the Old Testament. But, but this came as a shock to me. Um, I mean, here's G.I. Packer, a very conservative evangelical. He led the charge back in the 70s and 80s on the um, on um, forwarding the doctrine of biblical inerrancy and teamed up with Norman Geisler and R.C. Sproul, who are no liberals, yeah. <laughs> um, right. and to uh, write the definition of uh, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, perhaps the most conservative definition of biblical inerrancy out there. And yet while he was writing this statement, this definition and agreeing with Geisler and Sproul on it, he was holding this view. Yes. Um, so, you know, so he had no uh, hesitation with- Right, and I think uh, therefore, Mike, that people who think that biblical inerrancy implies young earth creationism are quite mistaken, entirely wrong. It's a matter of hermeneutics, as you said. What kind of literature is this? And then how should we interpret it? Now, I mentioned that for decades, I've been uh, skeptical that we should press these sorts of details um, for literality. And Packer was one of my guides on this. Uh, when I heard Packer, he would describe it as what he called dramatic history. It, these were historical events, but they've been dramatized in a colorful way. Well, I think that's good, but it isn't as technical and as careful as Jacobson's categorization of mytho-history. And, mm -hmm. and so I think they're talking about the same thing, but I think Jacobson has a technically more correct genre analysis of Genesis 1 to 11. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, even if someone disagrees with you and Packer and, and other theologians on this matter, one can still say that, look, you may disagree on how to interpret Genesis, but it doesn't mean that you are dehistoricizing the Bible. It's just a matter of how you interpret that. It doesn't mean that yeah. you have a lower view of Scripture than a person who interprets it in a very literal sense in, in Genesis. It's just a difference in how you interpret the text. And and Packer um, didn't, I mean, he, he died uh, last year, 2020. He died last year as a very strong evangelical. Uh, he hadn't gone down liberalism. So the old, no. well, we'll get to it in a moment, but the, the old claim that you start to do that, you're going down a slippery slope. Well, that certainly didn't apply to Packer. I don't see no. it happening to you either, but um, so let me ask you this. Do you think there was an actual Garden of Eden? I am inclined to think so, yes. The, the description of the four rivers um, can make sense, I think. Um, and it's entirely possible that this could have been a sort of oasis of sorts that existed in the Persian Gulf region. 
I just don't think that it was as recently as 10,000 years ago, but much, much uh, further back, hundreds of thousands of years ago. But okay. geographically, it, it could have been there. What about the two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the fruit on it that Adam yeah. and Eve ate and the snake in the garden? What do you think about them? Are they real? I think that those are attempts to express in a figurative and imaginative way the moral choices and culpability that man has before God, and also then the sort of uh, spiritual death that ensues, the alienation from God and the guilt before God uh, as a result of sin. So I think that those are central truths that are to be affirmed uh, that are taught by the story of the fall, and you don't need literal uh, fruit hanging on trees in order to see those lessons. Well, I can see that, um, I mean, I, it's already started, but you're, for those statements, you're going to catch more flack from evangelicals than a B-17 over Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's ironic, Mike, because I have seen quite a number of evangelical Christians who, in order to preserve the literalness of the narrative, are willing to give up the universal progenitorship of Adam and Eve. They're willing to treat Adam and Eve as a couple that lived just a few thousand years ago. There were just two people out of a wider population of thousands of individuals. And that what Genesis 1 to 11 is about is this select couple and their descendants. And thereby they give up what I take to be one of the central and most important theological teachings of Genesis, and that is the universal progenitorship of Adam and Eve, that every human being who has lived on this planet is a descendant of this primordial couple. And so I find it so peculiar that in an effort to save literality, they sacrifice one of these central theological teachings of Scripture, which I think is just grossly misplaced uh, theological priorities. So, all right, let's just go back then to these, to these symbols or whatever you call them, these imaginative uh, figures. We're, we're saying, right, you're saying that the, the two trees, the, the serpent in the garden, the, the, the temptation that was given to Adam and then passed along, or to Eve and then passed along to Adam, um, that that didn't really happen. So what do we do with the fall of man in that case? Because if those things aren't true, then it would seem to suggest that Adam did not sin. Eve did not sin. If there is no sin, there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, there's there's no need for a savior. And where does that leave Christianity? Oh, my goodness. Well, now you've made a number of connections there. I, I mean, the doctrine of original sin is not essential to Christianity. Uh, the Orthodox Church doesn't hold to it. All that's necessary for the uh, need of Christ's atoning death is the universality of sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ didn't die for Adam's sin. He died for all of our sins. And that's preserved whether or not you believe in original sin. But in fact, as I just said a few moments ago, I want to preserve the truth of the fall, 
that uh, in fact there was a first moral choice that was made by Adam and Eve by which they rebelled against God and became morally culpable before God and were spiritually alienated from him. They died spiritually. And so I do see spiritual death and alienation uh, coming as a result of these first moral choices by Adam and Eve. Okay. So, all right. Some are going to accuse you now of uh, going down that proverbial slippery slope, right? To abandoning the Bible mm -hmm. as uh, divinely inspired or a credible source um, by referring to Genesis 1 through 11 as mytho history. That slippery slope, I mean, of course, that can always be used by someone, <clears throat> a conservative who is, you know, criticizing another conservative for taking a, a position they don't regard as being true. So um, how would you respond to that? I want to emphasize here that there are hermeneutical guidelines uh, that direct our classification of literary genre. This is not done arbitrarily. People who say that if you think of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history, then you can regard anything in the Bible as mytho-history are incredibly naive and, and simply ignorant of the way in which literary criticism works. As I say, that would be like saying that because the book of Revelation is Jewish apocalyptic that's filled with symbols um, and figures that don't need to be taken literally, that therefore you can read the book of Acts as Jewish apocalyptic or the, the gospels. That is simply uh, utterly wrongheaded. There are guidelines hermeneutical guidelines that direct us to how we classify the literature, and that will prevent the slippery slope. Mm, good thoughts there. You know, I don't mean this as a, a political uh, toward one party or another here, but about a year ago, there were reports about Hunter Biden's uh, laptop coming out, uh, being discovered, and it had all kind of damning information about him and at that time, presidential candidate, uh, Joe Biden, and the, the corporate media, as well as uh, big tech, uh, just dismissed it uh, out of hand. Well, there's really no good evidence for this. And uh, we, you know, they were censoring uh, this on the news and on social media and all this kind of stuff. Well, recently we've come to find out that it is Hunter Biden's uh, laptop and there is some damning information on it. What I fear with your book, uh, um, Bill, is that there are going to be a lot of people, uh, conservatives and progressives alike. So on both sides of the spectrum, who are going to assume that in your book and what you are teaching, it, it's out of line with what they have thought and radically out of line. I mean, if you're saying that you think that there was some sort of an original Adam, uh, albeit shrouded in mytho-history, <clears throat> that's going to turn a bunch of, uh, a number of theologians off. And when you're yes. saying it's mytho-history, it's going to turn a number of evangelicals off. But neither of them on that side of the spectrum, on each side of the spectrum, will have looked at this data like you yes. have. They're going to make prejudgments before they even read your arguments. And so, 
I'd like to encourage uh, those on both sides that before you come out and really be criticizing Bill on this, that you take a look at what he presented. Take a look at the evidence. Give it a fair and open-minded consideration to see if what he said is true. If you determine at the end that he's made his, his case, but um, you're not quite in agreement with it, that's fine. But don't yeah. write these critical reviews and critical statements and posts and, and everything before you even look at what he's really said. That you're making the same mistake as corporate media and big tech did about Hunter Biden's uh, laptop a year ago. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for this time. And I um, appreciate you a lot, brother. Thank you, my friend and colleague. It's great to be partnered with you at HBU. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.